Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your illegal, paralegal host, Robert J. Marks. There are bunches of lawsuits now against so-called generative AI like Chat, GPT, and Dolly. But what is generative AI? Well, it turns out generative AI learns from training data how to generate new and unique outputs. Think of the training examples as being sparsely populated in a silo. Generative AI begins to populate the silo with things close to and resembling the examples. ChatGPT takes the writings of humans and generates writings that mimic these writings. Dali is trained with thousands of images and generates images that are in some sense close to the so-called training data. But here's the rub. Much of the data used to train generative AI is protected by copyright. This includes both pictures and writing, both of which could be copyrighted. Does the use of this material constitute copyright infringement? That's the question now being litigated in the courts. For example, Getty Images has a collection of copyrighted pictures. Getty Images is notorious for protecting its collection. If, if you use a Getty image on your website, be prepared to pay either voluntarily or in court. Getty is suing generative AI company Stability AI. The company generates AI images based on generative AI trained with images. In the lawsuit that Getty has brought forward, Getty claims that Stability AI has copied more than 12 million photographs from Getty images. That's a lot of photographs to use. But they copy them without permission or compensation to Getty images. These were the original images scattered around the silo in my description. Stability AI looked at those images and generated similar images in the silo using so-called generative AI. Here's another case before the courts. If generative AI is trained on human-written computer code, it can generate similar code. A lawsuit brought by computer programmers was filed against, quote, GitHub, its parent company, Microsoft, and its AI technological partner, OpenAI. The suit alleges that, quote, this case represents the first major step in the battle against intellectual property violations in the tech industry arising from artificial intelligence systems. Now, big AI's counter in these suits relies on the fair use provisions of copyright law. Fair use allows copyrighted material to be used by others in certain cases. Big AI, in their, in their defense, says that they are protected by this fair use allowance. Uh, what is the fair use allowance? Well, the Supreme Court said they have, quote, repeatedly made clear, the court has repeatedly made clear that a work of art is transformative for purposes of fair use under the Copyright Act if it conveys a different meaning or message from its original material. Uh, so the big word here is transformative. In order to use copyright material, the end result in the copy of the copyright material must be transformative. That's the reason, for example, copyright material and images can be used in satire. It's, it's uh, transformative. So do those suing have a leg to stand on? A recent ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court bolsters their chances, I think. It isn't immediately obvious that this ruling has an impact on lawsuits against big AI. I believe that Mind Matters is the first to recognize the link between the Supreme Court ruling and the cases against big AI. 
And this is what we'll talk about today. But I wanted somebody in here that knew what they were talking about, and that uh, that's who our guest today is. Our guest is Richard W. Stevens. Richard is an attorney and fellow of Discovery Institute's Bradley Center. He has written extensively on how code and software systems evidence design in biological systems. He holds a JD with high honors from the University of San Diego Law School and a computer science degree from UC San Diego. Richard has practiced civil and administrative law litigation in California and Washington, D.C. He's taught legal research and writing at George Washington University Law School and George Mason University Law School, and he now specializes in writing dispositive motion and appellate briefs. He has authored or co-authored four books and has written numerous articles and spoken on subjects including legal writing, economics, the Bill of Rights, and Christian apologetics. He's a common contributor to Mind Matters News at mindmatters.ai. His fifth book, Investigation Defense, is forthcoming. We are promised. Richard, welcome. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me today. Uh, first, let's talk about the Supreme Court ruling that just came out not too long ago. Can you kind of tell, tell us what it was about and what were the key findings the, from, from an attorney's perspective? Sure. I think you're probably referring to the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith case. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that one, uh, it, it's got, I, I'm a little bit of a stickler for getting the facts exactly right, but in a podcast, you kind of have to just gestalt the whole thing. So uh, to boil this down, it, it, a situation was this. A woman by the name of Lynn Goldsmith, a professional photographer, took a photo of the musician named Prince. Uh, later, Andy Warhol was uh, paid to produce an orange silkscreen portrait of the musician, Mr. Prince, or actually his first name is Prince, as it turns out. And uh, Andy Warhol made 16 different versions of this portrait using the original Goldsmith photo as the source. So you, so you can kind of see what happened. You had a photo, and then Warhol did his specialized work with it. Now, uh, Goldsmith had given Vanity Fair magazine a license to use her original photo as an artist reference for illustration. That's the actual terminology. What does it mean, an artist reference? Well, if someone's going to do, for example, you can do a caricature of somebody, but you start off with a real photo. I see. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. You know, so you, you, here's a picture of the person. Now draw, draw what you want from it. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, and you can do things like that. So that's what they did here is they gave, uh, she gave uh, the, ma the magazine that. And it was a one-time only license. She, uh, she did not give a license to make a bunch of copies of this thing. And so that's kind of how it, how it left. Well, down the road years later, what happened was um, Goldsmith found out that the Andy Warhol Foundation had actually 16 of these Warhol uh, prints made that were specialized by Mr. Warhol himself. And uh, she sued everybody involved, Andy Warhol, we'll just say for simplicity, and sued them um, for making unauthorized copies with slight changes and then publishing them and using them. And she alleged that they were called, these were derivative works. We'll talk about what that term means as it has a special meaning. Now, uh, the Andy Warhol people said, no, what they did was fair use. They had the photograph, but they they were in, engaged in fair use. And, and fair use uh, allows a person to use an otherwise copyright protected thing uh, for special, special kinds of uses. And it's not considered an infringement of the copyright. 
So that was a situation. She said, you made 16 copies of my work and sold them and used them. And uh, the other side says, uh, well, we are allowed to because we have fair use. So um, now, so the question the question that the court uh, addressed was very narrow. If you read the decision, they, they expressly say we're, we're addressing one issue only. So, for example, in, in the fair use situation, in order to figure out whether someone has fair use, there are a number of different factors that you can consider. But there's the, the kind of like the main one. Well, I'll tell you what they are. The first one is you look at what the purpose and the character of the use of the copy is going to be. Is it going to be commercial or nonprofit or educational? Second one is, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of product it is. For example, you know, is, is it a photograph? Is it music? That kind of thing. It can have an effect on the decision. Um, how much of the original is used in the copy? Uh, you know, if you use a tiny little fragment versus the whole thing. Example of that would be, for example, if you use two seconds from a song, have you, you know, have you infringed on the copyright just two seconds? Probably not because it's too small, but that's the arguable sort of thing. And also an important part of infringement or fair use uh, problem is whether your use of the copy damages the market for the, for the original or for the rights to the original. So, for example, if you were to create a portrait that was really terrific and you wanted to sell it, and you want to have autographed copies and someone else, um, you know, makes thousands of them and then they sell them for 15 cents and you were going to sell them for a thousand dollars. Well, you've just lost your market. And that's so, if, you know, fair, it wouldn't be fair use for somebody to use your product in some way uh, and destroy your market or damage your market for it. So those are the four big things. But the only one really being concerned, here, really concerned here uh, in this case was the purpose and character of the use. That's the first fair use factor. And this is uh, this is kind of a a, a complicated thing. It, 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 and it's actually really interesting to what we talk about when we talk about AI and we talk about mind matters and um, the nature of thought and all the rest. Because what we get down to is distinguishing between two things, a derivative work, quote, quote, or a, quote, um, transformative work. And these are terms that only a lawyer could love. <laughs> the uh, Truly, it, it's it's really mind-bending. So a derivative work, and, and this is going to make a difference in the case, if it's a derivative work, that means it's basically this. In this situation, we'll just talk about photographs. It's Goldsmith's photograph, exactly the same or approximately the same, um, you know, just real, real similar. It's, it's, it's real similar to the original. A transformative work is where you've taken the, uh, the photograph and really modified it so much, used it in a totally different, in, in a totally or very different way. You know, the, uh, instead of as a photograph, you're using it for in some other, some other sort of context. And if it's far enough away from just being a simple copy, then it's called a transformative work. Well, it turns out the copyright law protects. Uh, the owner against people infringing through derivative works because it allows the owner to retain the rights to derivative works. That's basically copies and close copies, close reproductions. But they don't necessarily have rights over transformative uses. Uh Aha. So um, that's kind of what the court looked at, the Supreme Court looked at was, well, did Andy Warhol's very um, stylized use of the photograph of Prince from 1981. And, you know, if, if you go to the decision itself, you can actually see the photographs. It's really, it's fun to look at. It's one of the very few cases that actually has pictures in it. <laughs> and you can see, uh, 
what Warhol did. And if you know Warhol's work, you're not surprised by what he did, but it's, you know, prints in a stylized way using the original photograph. Uh, and the question is, well, was that derivative or did he, did, did Warhol transform it enough so that it's, it's no longer something that's protected by the original copyright or it's considered a fair use because you, uh, you changed it. You, you change it so much. It's, it's, you're not using it anymore. Uh, just exactly the way the person who created it did. You're using it in a, in a very, very different way. Um, and in this case, the court held, nope, they made copies. I see. And it was, in, it was not, and they, the fair use defense did not work for them on that issue. Now, the, there are three other issues it didn't even touch, but on that issue. Okay, you know, a lot of law is based on kind of fuzzy terms like transformative. Yep. Everybody has to agree on that. I, I was involved in a patent litigation one time when they had something called a Markman hearing. Mm -hmm. And before the, uh, before the patent litigation started, uh, the two sides had to get together and, and define what they meant by specific terms. And the judge would kind of rule on, yeah, we can use your definition, but not yours. The one that I had, interestingly, was does magnification correspond to magnification less than one? I said, yeah, magnification can correspond to magnification less than one. And I, I, I use the example of imaging Jupiter. Are you making a magnification of that? Yeah, you <laughs> are, because it's so small. And I said, no, it's a demagnification because Jupiter is you know, a, a thousand times the diameter of earth or whatever it is. And so I said it was a demagnification, but the, ju the judge ruled against us and it hurt the patent litigation that was going on. And that was, an, that was an interesting phenomenon. You mentioned, this was interesting. You mentioned the uh, product and music. There was a recent copyright um, case with Vanilla Ice, who was a rap musician. Mm -hmm. He did, he did a song called Ice Ice Baby. And he was sued by Queen and David Bowie because they lifted, I think it was a bass line from the original song. And the litigation went on and on and on. And finally, finally Vanilla Ice said, no, nah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, so he bought the rights to the song. He bought the song. So he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to go through any more litigation. He said it was cheaper for him to buy the song than it was to go through uh, litigation. So that, that's interesting. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, thing for people to think about. And so when people talk about, well, if we're going to use, uh, if we're going to use a fair use, you know, a small part of, of a copyright work, well, what's small and, and what's distinctive? And, and that's really a challenge, isn't it? What, what is small? What is distinctive? And so for me, the, uh, the, this raises some very interesting questions because I know you and I have talked in the past and I've written on the subject of whether um, AI can make judicial decisions. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this, okay, so how does AI, for example, decide that the baseline of a particular rock song is um, sufficient, you know, sufficient, uh, sufficiently distinctive, sufficiently copyrightable, or not? I mean, it, it's a human decision. It, it, it could it could go any way you want. Some people don't even believe in copyright. So you have, it's like, how do you compute that particular one? Speaking of non-computable you, your book, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think a, a lot of the litigation in copyright and patent cases is basically a, uh, a match like 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 a competitive match uh, about what different words mean in the patent or in the copyright and uh, what what corresponds to uh, the word transformative. You know what 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 does that mean? 
Now, I read, now I, I didn't have the patience to read the, the whole decision, but one of the things they, the Supreme Court said is that a work is not transformative is if it, and this is a quote, recognizably derives and retains the essential elements of the source material. Mm-hmm. That it is not transformative if it recognizably derives from and retains the essential elements of the source material. There is this one website called um, called thispersondoesnotexist.com. It's a wonderful site. If you go to thispersondoesnotexist.com, you can click on, on the pictures and just refresh it, and you get pictures of people that sure look like people, but they're not. They were generated by generative AI. They took thousands, maybe millions of faces. They put them in this silo that I talked about, and then they kind of generated faces that kind of looked, uh, looked something like human beings. And they all had lips and noses and eyes, and uh, every, every training image was that of a human being. And all of the images generated were that of a human being. So there were no images of, say, uh, soup cans or toe fungus or automobiles, which were used in the training of this generative AI. They were all human faces. And what, what did the generative AI get to give you? It gave you a new human face. So that, to me, in, in the regular English use, uh, looks to be not transformative it, because it, it recognizably derives from and retains the essential elements of the source material. They use source material, which was a face. They use source material. And, and then the output of the generative AI was a face. So again, I, I don't have a legal background, but that sure seems to be pretty transparent to me. Well, this is what uh, law school used to be for. Uh, nowadays, I think it's doing other things. But um, actually, what, what you do in law school is, is learn how to wrestle exactly with the, the issue you've raised. And basically, in law school, what you learn how to do is argue both sides, <laughs> So, okay. uh, so seriously, I mean, that, that, that's what you do. Um, and one of the funnest things ever is to take, is to take one side and then turn around and take the other side yourself, you know, um, in, in a debate or in a class situation. So your situation, so what, what you've done here is to say, okay, it, it, we, we put a, we put face, facial characteristics in, we got facial characteristics out. Isn't that derivative? Well, um, if you de- if you define your uh, reference as face in the most macro sense, well, you could say that. But then if you're on the other side of that argument, the other side would say, well, wait a second. Do they have a Caucasian eyes or Asian eyes? Do they have a Roman nose? Do they have a Norwegian nose? Okay, right? Do they have thick lips, thin lips? Um, you know, h- how are we doing on facial hair? Okay, all those kind of things, color of eyes, uh, you know, so what we do as lawyers is, is, is if you're on the other side, is you look at all the differences, all the, well, this is very different eyebrows. Um, well, how, you know, so how would you say that's derivative? How is that retain, you know, um, how is the output retaining the, the essential elements? What, what constitutes essential elements, which goes right back to your earlier question, which is, or your earlier point that a lot of things in the, in the legal system or in the legal analysis, uh, uh, are these very fuzzy terms. Essential elements is in the eye of the beholder in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So, okay. That, that, yeah, that's interesting. See, but in this case, I would say that if you had somebody with uh, thin lips that was a Caucasian female, you could certainly find a scad of people with thin lips that were Caucasian 
females in the training data. Sure. Yeah. So uh, that, that I guess that would be my counter argument. The big question, though, is is getting down to AI. Um, we have all of these litigations, for example, from um, uh, Getty Images and these this lawsuit against GitHub and Microsoft. Um, how how does the Supreme Court ruling relate to this current litigation brought on by creative artists. And these creative artists, by the way, say that they're stealing our stuff. And because they're stealing our stuff, we don't have the income that we used to have because they no longer have to hire us. Mm-hmm. So how does it, does it relate to the current litigation by these creative artists against big generative AI? I think that this particular case, the Andy Warhol case, uh, is is not going to be much of a signpost. Um, I think what it does is it helps it helps a little bit. If I'm litigating a copyright case on either side, it's going to help a little bit in understanding the way the Supreme Court wants us to think about the difference between derivative works and transformative works, and it gives us an example. A lot of of what the law is when people do legal research. Uh, legal research is oftentimes looking for precedent cases or comparable cases, analogous cases. Say, okay, in these other cases, this is how the courts operated. You should do this in our case. That's the kind of reasoning we do by analogy. Well, and by precedent. Okay, so this particular case is going to help uh, perhaps most directly with people who make uh, reproductions, stylized reproductions of somebody else's work. That's what its most direct application is going to be. It, it, it won't have a lot of other application um, on its facts. Now, Supreme Court cases tend to be used for more than just their narrow facts, though. So as you point out, for example, where the Supreme Court gives a definition of what a transformative work is versus a derivative work. Um, okay, now that language will get used, but it'll be used in some other context. So. Um, you, 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 it'll be very case by case, and that's how the system operates. It's very case by case, so they'll have a generalized principle now that people can go out and argue both sides of. <laughs> um, uh, similarly, um, it, 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 uh, there w- there are statements in this Andy Warhol Foundation case that reflect what we would in the in what we lawyers would call the law. That is, if the Supreme Court said it, it must be true. That type of thing. <laughs> so if it's yes. if if they if they have a holding and they say, okay, this is this is the view that we want you to take. These are the considerations we want you to consider, judges, because the Supreme Court is talking to judges. Um, then the judges will will uh, supposedly anyway look at that and say, okay, this is how I'm supposed to think about the problem, and then proceed from there on your individual case. So to me. The case, uh, it, it's very narrow. It only deals with one of the four fair, fair use uh, exceptions to copyright protection. It does it only really in a photographic context. And so it's only kind of going to be useful for photographs that get stylized and re- reproduced or reproduced in various ways. It probably, but it does talk about these policy considerations. For example, as you pointed out, that is, um, you know, are, are you taking away my market? You know that's an important aspect of it, and it talks about that very briefly, but it's not it's not part and parcel of the case. So I would use as a lawyer on either side of one of these, I would use uh, this particular case as guidance. But whether it actually changes the outcome of very many cases, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. The Supreme Court decision aside, uh, have you had a chance to look at any of these cases against uh, AI generated by the original artists? Well, I haven't I haven't studied them all. I have to I have to say I have not. What what I've been looking at is in general looking at what what people are trying to do. 
And it seems to me that uh, the, uh, the concern is uh, that, you know, a party, some party somewhere wants to be able to retain the, the financial benefits or making data available. And the other side wants to say, well, you made it available publicly. Why can't I read it? And that's, that's, that's really it. You know, you made it available. Why can't I read it? Because a lot of what this, uh, a lot of what the concerns are like, for example, using a database to get information to then develop an AI um, set of constructs. Well, all they did was read it. How is that? How is that copying it? How is that uh, displaying it? How is that publishing it? How is that? What, you know, so, but then again, the owner of the database is going to say, yeah, but you're profiting from something I put up. Well, I could, I could write a terrific article about Dostoevsky. I'm profiting from his work, but I'm not copyright violating, am I? No. So that's kind of it. I mean, so it's really, it seems to me that that's kind of a lot of the argument is, is really about whether, whether the people who have done the work of, or, or put up the resources to make databases available can maximize their profits on it. I'm not against that. I could be on either side of some of these. Um, my, my bigger, you know, sort of, you know, passion is to look at, you know, AI as an institution or AI as an effect, how, how it's going to affect decisions that affect people. So this is, this is part and parcel of the process, certainly trying to figure out who has the rights to various elements and how can they use these various data items. Um, but it, it, I think ultimately over time, whether it's by legislation or court decision, um, it'll probably get resolved where the property rights are defined. A lot of the trouble here is really really a basic property rights definition situation. We didn't have this in the 1800s or the 1700s. We do now. So how do you define the property right in information? And it's got ragged edges. It's, uh, it's uh, fuzzy, as you say. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. You know, and I think sometimes ChatGPT generates stuff where some of it uh, is obviously not transformative. I ask, for example, make up an original Peripodoskian joke. Now, Peripodoskian, that's a big, long word, and I think I'm saying it right, but probably not. But, but it's a joke where you tell it, and then there's kind of a twist at the end. Uh, a classic one is the Groucho Marx quip that he said, I once shot an elephant in my pajamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how he got in my pajamas, I'll never know. That's right. So what it does, it takes you down a logical, a logical path and then it switches. Um, another Groucho Marx one is outside a dog, a man's best friend is a book. Inside a dog, it's too dark to read. So again, <laughs> it, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it takes you, it takes you down a road and then it, it turns, you know, it, it turns wonderfully. Um, a great one by Emo Phillips is he said, I don't swim now as, as well as I used to, thanks to evolution. Okay. So <laughs> he, he, they take these lines and they do, they, they do a switch at the end. Anyway, I asked chat GPT for some original Peripodoskian jokes and they just generated these things, pure plagiarism. Now these things are not copyrighted by these they, they, these are just open humor. They're not protected by copyright. But nevertheless, I think there's there's clear cases like this where there is outright plagiarism. I think in other cases it might get a little more fuzzy. So it might boil down to a case by case. One of the guys that's suing uh, ChatGPT, or I don't know if it's ChatGPT, it's one of the large language models, is a guy that did a prompt on the large language model that generated a response. And he says, oh my gosh, this looks exactly like something that I wrote. And he went back and yeah, it was a, it was a very close 
resemblance to what he wrote. So sometimes that mixing up of the words in these large language models for generative AI doesn't doesn't do so well. And sometimes things come through which are, I think, clear plagiarism. In other cases, it's not it's not quite as apparent. So I think that that's interesting. I, I also think, and see, I, I think you agree that if big AI loses these cases that are being brought against uh, GitHub and Microsoft, that the impact on generative AI like ChatGPT, Bard, Dolly, is going to be enormous because they're not going to be allowed to use copy, copyrighted material in training their stuff. And like like Getty Images said, they uh, one of the generative AI companies plagiarized or looked at millions of its images, all of which were copyrighted. So all of a sudden, those are going to have to be removed from the uh, mix if they find out indeed that this is plagiarism. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And I, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. It depends how good the lawyers are, I suppose, because as you say, these are, argu- these are attorneys arguing against each other, right? Well, that, and actually one of the things I always try to re- remind people whenever they read about a crazy case who actually made the decision, folks? It's called the judge. And who affir- and who affirmed it on appeal, folks? Judges. So what the the real you know people want to blame the lawyers um, and maybe, but actually it's judges who decide these things one way or the other, or legislators if they decide to pass laws. But uh, what you're de- what you're sketching out here with respect to you know using people's data, it really is a property rights definition problem. And if ultimately the courts or legislatures come up with the notion that, well, actually a person's database is their their personal property and, or, yeah, personal property because it's not real property, personal property, and you can uh, – and, and, and you, you don't get to trespass against it without – you know, you, you, ha- you have to have permission. You have to have a license. You have to have something. Otherwise, you can't use it at all. Well, now, if they say that, then what happens to libraries? I, I, I don't follow. Well, libraries are where you get to go use uh, people's stuff without right. a license. <laughs> so how is how is a database online different from a physical library? Well, I, I would say I, I, I would say the argument is is that the libraries in some way had to pay for those books, which reimbursed the originator of the uh, of the intellectual property. So they've been compensated with that in mind that this would be an end use. They're indirectly licensing it for end use because they sold it to the library and made their bucks. Yeah, but they made they made the retail price. They didn't. They they didn't make a thousand user price. Yeah, that's true. See the difference. Yeah, and so that's and and that's one of the issues is is how, you know for how many users are going to be using it. I think you probably know that, for example, um, the royalties paid for music uh, broadcast on radio uh, are different depending on the size of the audience. Yes. So similar similarly here, um, you know these um, th- these very large database uh, uh, people whoever owned them. Um, you know, one user would pay one price, but if you're going to, uh, you know, provide all this material to a million users, that'd be a different price. And that's why I say it's really a property rights problem in, in a lot of ways. In, in a lot of ways, it's that. It, and yeah, I think it can eventually get solved. The, the, the problem to me, the, the bigger problems are what is AI going to do with it and how is it going to affect how people think and what they do? And I think uh, that's, of course, something you and I are always working on. So th- this is something interesting. I used to work for a radio station. This was before the days of high automation. And we would have, I think, one day every year, every six months, for example, where we would have to make a catalog of all the music that was played. 
And this catalog of music went to, I think there were three companies, CSAC, BMI, and ASCAP. And they were the ones that collected revenue from the radio stations, which they distributed to the originators of the song. And that was their compensation for playing the music on the radio. Today, I'm sure it's much more sophisticated than that, but that's what that's what we used to do. I, I, I just wonder if something like a ASCAP or a BMI can be, I think it was BMI, uh, could be used, for example, a way of distributing profits to people that people whose original artwork were used, for example, in a generative AI computer program. Well, yeah. I, in fact, I rather think that in the modern era, um, the possibilities for that are so much greater than they were back in the day when you had to keep paper records of what you broadcast. Um, it, today, um, for example, I use um, Lexus uh, and Westlaw, the two the two biggest uh, online legal research systems. And if you if you buy a subscription, you pay a certain price. If you're a certain size law firm, you pay a higher price. If you're just an off the, off the street person, you can actually buy access on a onesie basis, um, one thing at a time. It's all very automated. You know, you go in there and go go for it. Um, similarly, with Uber, for example, Uber is is another model of that where. It's now very elect, you know, electronic, or very, very computerized. And in, as you may know, Uber, uh, the charge to, to take you by Uber depends on when you want to go and what the demand is. And it's a very dynamic minute by minute uh, price changing and availability of service changing all the time on and off. Um, and, and it's, it's uh, dynamic, it's three dimensional. So because of that, it seems to me possible, once you've defined where the property rights are, to license them out or allow use of them, whatever makes sense. I think the other direction, which would say uh, nobody can have property rights in, in written material online, if you went that far, some people want to, well, now, you, uh, you, now there's no incentive to do it, to make this stuff available. Uh, certainly not publicly. Now you're going to put up a paywall and people will individually put up paywalls and there we go again. So it's still going to get monetized. Just how do you want to, how do you want to do it? Exactly. It seems in the settlement of these, of these uh, lawsuits that the skill of the attorneys in arguing their side and convincing the judge is going to be paramount. I was raised or I, I, I lived in Seattle. I wasn't raised in Seattle. I lived in Seattle during the the explosion of Microsoft when Microsoft became the big uh, the big kahuni on the block. Not a lot of people realize, but a lot of their success was not due to innovation. I would argue that Microsoft never in their history has done anything innovative. They have either copied it, they have uh, they they have stolen it, or they have litigated over it. And Bill Gates's father was a partner in Preston Ellis and Gates or Preston Gates and Ellis. Preston Gates and Ellis, I believe it was, which was a Seattle law firm. So Bill Gates had a lot of legal background and they copied and purchased and litigated all of their software. And even today, they, they, they copy stuff. They're never the first out of the gate. They're always doing something else. But they, they, went, to, um, they went to trial for Netscape. This was the big, big fight over the web browser. And uh, Windows sued them and... Uh, Windows Explorer 1, they took Lotus 1, 2, 3, which was the motivation for Excel. There was a litigation there. Lotus 1, 2, 3 won in court, as I understand, but Excel clearly has dominated. And then there was Apple who sued Microsoft because they swiped Windows from the Macintosh operating system. So it looks like uh, these, um, these litigants 
are going to be really, really skilled in arguing their sides. And I don't know, it's going to be interesting. If you were a betting man, whose side would you bet on in these big lawsuits? Hmm. If I were a betting man. And, and I know you're not, but maybe if you even give, give odds. You know, that yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, well, I don't think it's going to be something that'll be as uh, you know black and white as that. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be e- easily defined what the solutions are going to be, um, because we have we have a lot of a lot of money and a lot of interest on, on on both sides of all of these questions, and I and the judges are not necessarily influenced by what the lawyers write. I mean, they're influenced in the sense they see it, but whether that's actually how they want to play it is another thing, and so. Um, predicting what judges are going to do is, um, is a true f- fool's errand. Uh, we try to do it as lawyers. It's one of our jobs. But one of the things I've learned in 33 years is you pretty much can't. Um, I don't know how many times I've lost cases or won cases, and the judge's reasoning doesn't reflect either side's view. Wow. Okay. Well, where'd that come from? Um, it's it's it, it, so predicting that is is very tough, and so I don't I don't really want to try to predict. What I guess what I want to think about is to help people grasp what the, what the legal problems are and to understand, um, understand what's at stake and what, how it matters. And then people could kind of follow along, but what the average person isn't going to have much effect on it. And a lot of us lawyers aren't either. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. And this is really going to determine the future of this generative AI and what can and can't be used to train the generative AI. I think that's the bottom line, and these are going to be interesting lawsuits to follow. Indeed. Uh, interesting for us as outsiders, but not interesting for the litigants. Being a litigant is a terrible place to be. But Oh, my. Uh, absolutely right. I, th- I think it was Abraham Lincoln that says, avoid litigation at all costs, because everybody comes out thinking that they lost in litigation. So that's really rough. Yeah, I guess the good news is that litigation is, is sort of the, the, the more peaceful way to resolve some of these issues. Uh, the other one being violence. Yeah, it's better than fighting a duel, I suppose, right? <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Richard. Uh, th- th- these were fascinating discussions. Uh, we've been talking to Richard W. Stevens. He's an attorney and fellow of Discovery Institute's Bradley Center about U.S. copyright law's potential impact on big AI. Really interesting stuff. So until next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.